to the responsibility to protect. Words kill. All societies are potentially vulnerable. Possibly crimes. Timely and appropriate actions. Welcome to Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention by the Global Center for the Responsibility to Protect. I'm Jacqueline Streifeld-Hall, Research Director at the Global Center. This podcast features one-on-one conversations with practitioners from the fields of human rights, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. These conversations will give us a glimpse of the personal and professional side of how practitioners approach human rights protection and atrocity prevention, allowing us to explore challenges, identify best practices, and share lessons learned on how we can protect populations more effectively. Today I'm joined by Mina Syed, who is Minister Counselor at the Permanent Mission of Norway to the UN, and was Political Coordinator at the mission during Norway's 2021-2022 to tenure on the UN Security Council. Thank you for joining us today, Mina. Thank you for having me. Uh, As I just mentioned, Norway recently concluded its two-year term on the Security Council, during which there were numerous international crises, from the coup in Myanmar to the conflict in Ethiopia, and um, of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Based upon your experience as a diplomat working on the Security Council, what would you say are the biggest challenges of the Council in carrying out its mandate to maintain international peace and security, and specifically in relation to atrocity situations? Well, I think the Security Council um, is is facing several challenges um, at the moment and, and, and has been. Um, over the two past years, and in in that sense, it it has been a challenging two years for us as an elected member um, of the council, and uh, but also for for the whole Security Council. We entered the council in the time of COVID, um, which um, which very much sort of uh, impacted our full first year of the council, both in terms of how we were working. Um, and and the world around us. Um, and our second year, obviously, was very impacted by um, the, Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, which um, in many ways impacted the whole work um, of the Security Council. I think in, many would say that sort of the war in Ukraine has, has put the functioning of the council to a test um, uh, in a sort of truly existential way. Um, and, and obviously that, that, that war, which has now lasted um, over a year, has sort of shaken the trust and confidence in maybe the whole UN um, institution and perhaps specifically the Security Council. Um, and facing this while being a member of the Security Council, um, obviously was quite significant for Norway. Um, Norway sits on the Security Council an average of every 20 years. So so being there um, when this happened, obviously, was quite special for us. And, and, and sort of uh, in that uh, situation, it, it did become important for us both to, to see all venues of how to sort of respond to that particular uh, situation, but also in parallel, uh, ensure that the council was able to continue to act on exactly as you said, what is the the the, the mandate of the council, also on all of the other issues that were on the table and and on the council's um, agenda. 
And I think that so far, at least for the for for the the last year of our membership, um, the council was able to continue to act um, on its mandate on several of the sort of files um, that were on on uh, its uh, sort of on the its table, um, including. Um, files that Norway were sort of lead on, for example, as pen holders on, on um, the UNAMA mandate renewal on Afghanistan, um, on being able to uh, adopt a continuation of the Syria cross-border humanitarian mechanism. And, um, you know, despite high odds, getting some sort of achievements made on uh, sort of a numerous situations on the Security Council agenda. But when it comes to sort of prevention, I think that it's so um, anchored in the, in the UN Charter and uh, as being one of the main mandates of the Security Council. Um, it's vested in Chapter 6. Um, the Council actually has a full toolbox um, to use and for Norway, this was a priority to try to strengthen um, the, the council's actually preventive uh, mandate. I think that the geopolitical sort of situation that the council and the world is in today makes it perhaps more difficult than it has ever been, at least sort of um, post-Cold War. Um, and those were some of the struggles in our daily sort of work in terms of dealing with um, both atrocity prevention and and broader sort of um, conflict prevention. You just mentioned the the preventive mandate of the Security Council. You know, what what do you, I guess, as someone who is sitting on the council or your mission was, um, how did you guys envision the preventive role of the Security Council? Well, there are, as, as I mentioned, um, it's, it's a key part of, of the, ca- the council's mandate. And going into the council, this was something we were sort of very cognizant of. Um, chapter six of the, of the UN Charter basically sets out um, a number of tools that the council has at its disposal. And we were very sort of cognizant that well-timed prevention measures of the, uh, often can sort of help um, in critical moments when societies stand at the brink of conflict or risk uh, lapsing back into it. Getting it formally on the council agenda, various situations, I think uh, requires uh, council members, elected members like Norway, to sort of use um, the tools um, but also to find creative ways of bringing situations to the council attention. It couldn't be formally or or informally. Um, during our time on the council, I mean, just requesting what's called AOBs, any other matters under a sort of security council meetings for updates on situation emerging situations seemed to sort of be one um, venue. Um, another uh, way to sort of address um, issues on the horizon um, is through what we call the SG lunches. So the Security Council meets with the Secretary General every month, both 
um, in a sort of composition of the 15 members, but also the elected members. And the elected members' monthly lunch with the SG includes the E10 members sort of setting the agenda and asking the SG to address various issues. And it, I think, has become one of the venues to to get an informal sort of update from the SG personally, but also sort of from the Secretariat on situations uh, big and small or trends, um, including situations not directly on the council's formal agenda, but that are a bit on the horizon. And it's served as a way to sort of uh, actually discuss some, some of those issues. Further to that, Norway especially worked hard to try to sort of uh, restart um, something that used to be called uh, the, inf- the sort of informal situational awareness briefings that were held by the secretariat to council members. We spent quite a lot of time sensitizing council members to what that was. It seemed that COVID um, had kind of put a stop to that um, activity and and that regularization of that. And as you know, even though <laughs> elected members come and go on the council, I think even amongst permanent members, some of the sort of muscle memory when it comes to how the council works disappears uh, after sort of almost two years with COVID and working on the screen. So it actually was quite difficult to try to restart some of these more informal um, activities that had been part of the council's work before. Um, At the end of our term, we were able to sort of restart at least holding some in of these informal situational awareness briefings um, by the secretariat in the format of the elected 10. It seemed to be something that I, I hope that the, the elected 10 will continue to do and possibly also the wider council membership. I mean, obviously, there are other ways of of, uh, of emphasizing the, the council sort of prevention role. One is sort of its interplay with other regional organizations, I think both in the issues of sort of Myanmar and and Ethiopia, which both came to the forefront while we were sitting as members and uh, are sort of crisis and situations that are examples of the difficulty of actually preparing to sit on the council because many things happen that are difficult to prepare for or you didn't necessarily expect. And in these both these situations and, and many others, I mean, the importance of regional organizations such as the AU and ASEAN became um, sort of important in terms of, yes, the interplay between the council getting um, briefings from regional organizations. Um, I think some might say at times that the regional organizations can also be a bit of an impediment in terms of council action. And I think we we saw sort of both sides of that story um, of the importance of the of the regional organizations on various issues and and, and providing sort of updates to the council and actually uh, doing a lot of the work that they can do on the ground, um, but also at times that it seemed to be if not misused, then at least used by some council members as a reason to sort of delay action or or even mm, the council considering uh, specific 
issues. You just mentioned um, one of the initiatives that you did as um, an elected member with uh, sort of bringing back those more informal meeting settings. What overall do you think is the unique role that the E10 can play on the council, uh, particularly in navigating challenges of council dynamics? I think the E10 play an immensely important role on the Security Council. And as a group, as an entity, you know, called the E10, the E10 have kind of reasserted themselves in terms of uh, agency on the council over perhaps the last 10 plus years. Of course, the E10 is not... Um, a constant um, its composition changes every year and will depend on sort of the configuration and the composition of of the e10 the e10 at times consists of um, small island you know small island states small and medium-sized states to sort of large regional powers um, aspiring you know aspiring um, permanent members of the council who sit frequently and countries who may be sitting for the first time um, on the Security Council. So it's definitely not a homogeneous group, but I think there are some things that the E10 have in common that can drive the agency of the E10. Obviously, one of them is the fact that they are elected, which is in their name, and by that, there is a form of sort of accountability, I think, towards the UN membership who have elected them to sort of serve on their behalf. And that sort of cognizance amongst E10 members, some of whom have sort of campaigned and, and competed to, to get a seat on the Security Council and gone through an election by the general membership, I think there is an awareness of basically what is in the UN Charter in Article 24, that they are sort of acting on behalf of the whole UN membership, and that the whole UN membership has conferred conferred onto them the primary responsibility of the maintenance of international security through the Security Council, and that they act on their behalf. So that's one common denominator that brings um, the E10 together. I think often other issues such as a strong, obviously a strong belief in multilateralism, um, a belief in the Security Council and sort of um, an interest to serve um, may also drive a, a willingness of sort of uh, getting the council to, to act while sitting on the council for for those elected members for their tenure on the council. And I think we've seen over the years that certain sort of thematic issues seem to at least frequently surface uh, as popular items to deal with amongst elected members. Many of them are, you know, related to, as I mentioned, thematic issues such as the protection of civilians, humanitarian issues, but also issues such as climate and security, which I think has its exceptions 
obviously amongst some of some of um, elected members, but it's driving some of these thematic agendas on the council has has been one of the common denominators of many of the elected members. I think a very sort of staunch example of it is um, the Syria cross-border humanitarian file, which has since 2014 always been an E10 um, file on the council agenda. It's always been E10 um, co-pen holders who have um, drafted and led um, negotiations on the cross-border Syria resolutions, um, often on behalf of the Elect, the 10 elected members group and uh, and it's sort of shown the agency of of those 10 members i mentioned earlier that the that the e10 members have monthly lunches with the secretary general and he often says uh, and reminds the e10 of the fact that um the e10 have sort of the sixth veto um in the sense that you need nine affirmative votes in order to pass any resolution in the Security Council. And so obviously, if, if seven uh, of, the, of uh, the 15 members don't support an initiative, you're able to block it. And I think um, there's examples of this. For example, um, the Syria cross-border resolution that Norway and Ireland co-penned last summer in terms of extending the the um the possibility to bring cross-border humanitarian aid into the northwest of Syria was was carried by all of the E10 members who voted in favor of it and obviously the fact that there was no veto against it but we've seen examples of resolutions where where a majority of the of the permanent members have abstained and the resolution has been carried through the fact that there, the there are there's a unanimity amongst the E10. More than that, I think what often many many sort of think of when it comes to the E10 is more agreement in terms of the working methods of the Security Council. And obviously, that might sound very um, sort of uh, procedural from from the outside, but as you and probably many others know, at the UN, procedure basically becomes politics and politics becomes procedure and sort of knowing your way in the Security Council through um, navigating the working methods is extremely important in, all, in order to, to do um, politics. And I think that it's an issue of sort of power relationships between the permanent members and the E10 and it's an area where the E10 cooperate quite a lot in terms of uh, often common issues such as bringing more transparency, transparency and inclusivity into the work of the council. And I think for Norway on, on this example, um, transparency and inclusivity has been extremely important also through bringing civil society into the council's work through having civil society briefers, um, through having initiatives of, of specifically women civil society briefers and practitioners from the field, ensuring that the countries concerned are 
consulted ahead of meetings um, and, uh, you know, briefing the general membership um, on what happens in the Security Council uh, and bringing some degree of transparency to the work of the council that is done behind closed doors, both both to the general uh, membership, but also to the global public, has been some of the issues that, that Norway has been prioritizing and found a lot of support from E10 members. That doesn't mean that it's not important for the, for the P5. It's just um, examples, at least, of, of issues that, that we've collaborated very well with, with other E10 members. There's, there is a sort of, I, I wouldn't say, I don't know if I should say power rivalry, but there is a bit of, uh, there's a lot of discussion um, around the issue of pen holderships. Um, in the Security Council, given um, that pen holders are the lead on on various files, geographic or thematic, and the majority of the pen holders are um, the pens are normally held by P five. I think in in fact P three members and E ten kind of asserting themselves in taking the pen has been, I think, an important test to the E10 over the past years. And at least during our um, membership, we had a lot of good experiences in being co-pen holders together with other elected members, both in terms of sort of the, the large files that are continuously on the council, such as Afghanistan. I mentioned we were, uh, we were co-pens with Estonia our first year and we were pen holders alone the second year on Syria cross-border together with Ireland, but also on initiatives and resolutions such as a resolution on the protection of education that we brought forward our first year in the council, uh, resolution 2106 on the protection of education together with Niger, a resolution that was sort of the first of its sort and and a normative resolution that was unanimous, unanimously adopted and had around 100 co-sponsors. Um, that experience was very fulfilling, I think, for for us and also for Niger and an example of of sort of initiatives that elected members um, can take um, in order to drive sort of normative agendas on the council as well. Yeah, it's it's really interesting how you you almost get to become the norm champions because you can take a thematic issue that's important to you. And I mean, in this case, it's also important to the rest of the membership, but because it's important to you, you get to elevate it to a different level during that time on the council. Yes. And I would say, so for, so Norway, we had four um, priorities going into the council um, related to the protection of civilians, women, peace and security, climate, peace and security, and peace diplomacy building on our experience from peace and reconciliation efforts around the world. And you can you can kind of champion these priorities in different ways. Um, I mentioned one which was putting forward a thematic normative resolution, such as the one on protection of education, which obviously was also linked to the fact that Norway was chairing the working group on children in armed conflict while we sat on the council. But I also think 
even more than that, our sort of daily work um, in getting language, for example, on women, peace and security or climate and security into the mandates and the daily work of the council wasn't even was just as as much a part of our impact on on the Security Council. And I I, I mean, an example of that is um, Afghanistan, which I I touched on earlier, we sat with, we were pen holders on Afghanistan. And when we went into the council, I think very few of us expected to fall a few months or eight months later. And the immense sort of challenging situation that the country has has been in ever since. And so that role of being pen holders became quite different. And we sat with the responsibility of renewing the mandate for the UN on the ground in Afghanistan, first just the month after the fall of, of Kabul in September 2021, um, and, and also last year in March 2022, just three weeks after the Russian invasion um, on Ukraine, we were negotiating the UNAMA's sort of new 12-month mandate. And it was it was a very challenging situation because it was a time where I think many who looked into sort of the crystal bowl, um, the end of February 2022, after the Russian invasion, and made predictions on how council work would be in the coming months, would predict that there would be a stalemate, as we saw sort of during the, the Cold War. And this actually became one of the important um, tasks for Norway to, on the one hand, obviously, we were very clear and strong in our statements and actions on the issue of, of Ukraine in the Security Council. But on the other hand, facilitating our role as as facilitators and as penholders, for example, on Afghanistan, and making sure that the council was able to deliver on its mandate. And I think it was it was challenging, but in the end, we were able to both isolate um, situations from each other in order to make sure that there was some form of compartmentalization on on the different files and that the council was able. To, to adopt, in the end, for Afghanistan, a, a very robust new mandate for UNAMA on the ground, which has been important in terms of getting strengthened um, both political and human rights components into um, UNAMA's uh, mandate in a period that was and has been characterized by great um, volatility. And Af- Afghanistan is another example where we brought the E10 together also later on um, last year when when the council, in fact, was not able to agree on a statement on uh, uh, girls' education in Afghanistan in September. We gathered the E, the, e, the elected 10, together with, in fact, the incoming five who had been elected to join for this year in a stakeout on, and making a strong sort of statement on girls' education in Afghanistan. I really appreciate what you said on on the role of pen holders because I think that it's something that that gets underestimated by people who don't, you know, read a resolution year after year and see how much shifts and how even, you know, one to two line changes 
can make a world of difference in a mandate. Um, so it's really interesting. Since you mentioned sort of the, the challenges that came about from Ukraine and kind of anticipated stalemate and disagreements, I wanted to ask about the veto, uh, which is obviously a huge part of council dynamics. And I know that recently the General Assembly passed a resolution that calls for the president of the GA to convene a special session within 10 days of a veto cast by a a P5 member of the Security Council. Um, There have been a lot of veto initiatives in the past, uh, from the Act Code of Conduct to the the French-Mexican veto initiative. Uh, And this is sort of another new iteration of responding to the veto. Uh, This has been a a significant development, and we've already seen at least one, actually a few of those General Assembly meetings. What are your views on this veto initiative and how it might improve the capacity of the UN system as a whole? I think, in fact, over the last year, some of the most significant issues that have happened historically for the UN and the Security Council have been precisely in the aftermath of the Ukraine um, invasion and the the outbreak of the of the Ukraine war in the sense of how the council reacted and also the interplay between the council and the general assembly so before getting to the veto initiative i just wanted to also reference the fact that um days after the full scale invasion um of ukraine started several of sort of so-called like-minded countries in the council came together to put a resolution on the table condemning the invasion and demanding that Russia withdraw from Ukraine. It was a a resolution that inevitably we knew, everyone knew would be vetoed. But as a result of that and as a response to the veto, the Security Council swiftly moved to put a, t- a new resolution on the table and invoking the Uniting for Peace um, mechanism, which had not been used by the Security Council in 40 years, which was quite significant. The resolution was put forward by, by the US and Albania, and because it's a, res- a procedural resolution, it cannot be vetoed. And I think that was significant for everyone who sort of follows the United Nations and the interplay between the the Security Council and the GA, precisely because Uniting for Peace is something that we all are very familiar with and has been used um, in history. But it seemed extremely unlikely just weeks ahead that the Security Council would ever again invoke uniting for peace in that manner. And within days then, um, after that, the, the, the uniting for peace obviously was, was used and, and the GA met for an emergency special session, the 11th emergency special session, and adopted a resolution condemning the invasion um, with an overwhelming majority Um, and has since had several meetings and resolutions, um, both condemning um, the war and and, um, in many senses, um, I would say, through its voting results, both isolated Russia, but shown sort of the world that even though the council was blocked from action 
uh, the voice of sort of of the United Nations was not muted. And following this, even more or, or just as interesting with that, within weeks, the veto initiative uh, came into play. And I think many of us, Norway is uh, sort of a founding member of the ACT group, which you mentioned, the accountability, coherence and transparency group at the UN um, uh, of of member states who work for more transparency um, in the work of the Security Council's working methods. And through that, we had worked previously on on the ACT Code of Conduct, which uh, deals with sort of security action in response to mass atrocities, and which has had now, I get, I think, over 120 signatories to it. And all, all also sort of engaged on the initiative from Liechtenstein um, relating to the veto initiative. And the way that initiative then sort of came into play as a mechanism where, as you said, whenever a veto is used in the Security Council, uh, a GA debate would automatically be scheduled to ex- for the GA to express its views on that situation. And that has been significant because it raises the threshold for the use of the veto and it makes sure that the last word is not said by the veto power in the Security Council. And as you said, the, the GA since has held such debates following the casting of a veto, not on the issue of Ukraine, which I think many perhaps anticipated would be the triggering case of the veto initiative, but following a veto both then on DPRK, non-proliferation resolution, and also following the veto on the Syria humanitarian resolution in July of last year. And I think it is significant that um, the Council and the UN, the GA, was able to react in such a manner, especially from a sort of a UN nerd <laughs> historical perspective. Um, so, I mean, one one other thing to, to mention in addition to that was um, another response that came from the, the GA, obviously, was the decision to suspend um, Russia from the Human Rights Council, which I think was also sort of an example of the GA exercising all of the mechanisms at its disposal. Now that you've had a few months away from the council, how does Norway plan to use its experience as an E10 member to better ensure the UN system can effectively prevent and respond to atrocity crimes? So the two years that we sat on the council were obviously of high priority but our daily work at the UN as one of the top contributors to, to UN activities continues and will. And that is the core and the, the core of our UN activity and also a cornerstone in Norwegian foreign policy as such. Of course, we now bring with us a lot of experience from sitting on the council that I think it's natural to bring the synergies of in our continued work for preventive diplomacy, conflict prevention, and atrocity prevention. And I think that's where a little bit of what we discussed earlier of of seeing the sort of 
the holistic approach to conflict prevention is extremely important. Prevention mechanisms, everything from sort of supporting the UN special envoys, the SG special envoys, the political missions on the ground that are sort of in the front lines of of both preventive diplomacy, but also other sort of early warning mechanism, including obviously also long-term investments in human rights, but also climate, climate change adaptation, transitional justice, um, and other socioeconomic development is very much part of sort of Norway's holistic UN engagement. But I think we bring with us these tools um, from the council and also a lot of positive collaboration with other member states, having worked with, as I mentioned, other elected member states on the council, but also dealing with it more in depth with so many of the issues that the Security Council face and listening to other council members, including the countries concerned, has brought in one way richness in sort of our engagement foreign policy-wise and UN-wise going forward. And it's interesting, as I mentioned, it's 20 years since Norway sat last on the council. But many of our sort of prioritized engagements over the last 20 years have stemmed from issues that we dealt with when we sat on the council 20 years ago. So I wouldn't rule out that some of those experiences and and, um, experiences that we bring with us now having left the council will not sort of become priority or continue to be priorities in terms of our foreign policy work. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Expert Voices on Atrocity Prevention. If you enjoyed this episode, we encourage you to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and we'd be grateful if you left us a review. For more information on the Global Center's work on R2P, mass atrocity prevention, and populations at risk of mass atrocities, visit our website at number 2 p.org and connect with us on Twitter and Facebook at GCR2P.